Thank you for listening to this podcast from Emanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you would like to learn more about Emanuel or find more resources like this one, visit our website at emanuelbirmingham.com. Um, you guys ready to pray? Absolutely. Uh, James, would you pray for us this morning? Sure. <coughs> uh, Lord, thank you for um, <clears throat> gathering us here together um, in your name um, to to fellowship and to uh, to laugh and to uh, make fun of each other a little bit, but also to uh, to dive into some uh, tough topics. Lord, may we uh, may we hear the message that you're trying to give us. Lord, may we. Um, um, <clears throat> may we give each other uh, grace and space to to be able to communicate uh, some of these and, and and discuss some of these tough topics that we discuss in this room um, um, on an even playing field and to actually kind of uh, make progress in in the way we see things and and be able to clearly see um, uh your design for the world and how it's broken and 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 try to try to see ways we can speak into that lord um and uh lord bless eric and and his voice and uh his moderation uh of our topic and uh um and uh just bless all that are here this morning in your name we pray amen, amen. Well, good morning welcome to another equip uh, where we are talking about racism in the gospel this week. Uh, this is picking up on from last week, and uh, we probably have two, three more weeks left in this particular topic. Um, <clears throat> I'm just building on last week, uh, adding more texture. We talked about, um, well, the, uh, let's see if my little clicker works. Okay, I don't think so. Um, we talked about the goal of this little um, segment of our theological anthropology section and it's to define racism in a biblically consistent way and apply it to society. In order to be just in the city or like where we live we must first accurately diagnose the problem. Come on in. Um, and uh, so that's our goal over these many weeks is to define it in a biblically consistent way and then um, realizing that we can't actually be involved in acts of mercy or justice or um, you know bringing being salt and light in our communities for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of people um, if we don't accurately understand the different social dynamics that are going on um, that maybe transgress what it means to be made in the image of God. Uh, and so we went over the options. There's three options. Each, the first two have a derivative. And so it's like racism one, racism one A, racism two, racism two A, racism three did not have a derivative. It just is more of an all-encompassing kind of approach and understanding to society and social relations. Um, and so this week I just wanted to dive a bit deeper to provide a little bit more color to each of these options in case it was murky before. Um, it may get more murky, I hope not. Um, you know, the hardest part about teaching is not necessarily learning the material, 
but it is then organizing it back in a way that everybody who's not spent 15 hours thinking about it can pick it up like in that time. So I do not purport to have been able to, to do that, but I've tried to. So the questions you have will be really important in maybe bringing greater clarity uh, to this. Um, so we'll start again with racism one. Um, and uh, so this comes from Tim Keller. Uh, he says, to presuppose one's own race or nationality is inherently superior to another and to treat those of other races and nationalities with unfairness or unequal justice, with dismissiveness or with active contempt is a sin and one that is in danger of the fire of hell, referring to um, Matthew 5, 22. Um, and what I thought I'd try to do with each of these as best I could, and, and there's somewhat of a of a forced convention on these that I've placed that may not be totally accurate, but it's, again, it's an organizational tool to try to help us as best as I understand it. So um, is concept maps. So with racism one, this would be a kind of a tentative concept map that you might add to. Um, I hope, I don't think you'd take away from it, but, um, but you might add to. Uh, and so in the concept map, you see um, that kind of, and I didn't do this with the other ones, but with this one, there's both sort of negative attributes as well as um, kind of the proposed fixes in some ways. So these are just um, ideas or related terms that circle around this central idea. Um, so if we define it in the way that Tim Keller did, then here, here are the kind of surrounding concepts um, that are, you know, pretty directly relate. Um, and so systemic injustice, we talked about last week. Um, policies, laws, procedures that are enshrined in, again, you know, civil law, constitutional law, um, or even in an organization like a school like a, um, or a business uh, that you can go and look up in the HR manual and see that um, you know blacks are not allowed to work in the same area as whites or you know fill in the blank um, so that would be systemic and institutional um, systemic I would put more as a society-wide institutional would be more um, institutionally based if that makes sense um, systemic might include some not enshrined but cultural practices of overt racism you know um, so that, you know, individuals um, very overtly discriminate against minorities, particularly blacks. Uh, so it kind of is a combination of um, forms of institutional, even if it's kind of bigger institutions, and then also individuals. Um, and then there's white supremacy. Uh, it's just kind of the uh, both personal and uh, cultural, culture-wide uh, belief in the superiority of the white race and the uh, inherent and genetic inferiority of the black race and other races. But for, for this discussion, we'll just talk about white and black. Um, so those are some of the terms that kind of circulate around racism one. Um, and then uh, two sort of responses kind of came out of that. Um, over the course of American history. And so I just thought I'd talk about those for a second um, or two. Uh, and so the first one is equal opportunity. 
Um, so that's something you'll hear a lot as we talk about just racism in general and culture. And um, it best relates to racism one, and we can talk about why maybe after I explain it all, um, if you have a question. Uh, but equal opportunity has kind of a, um, a developmental history, if you will. So uh, you might start at 1776, you could probably start before that, but 1776, the Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Well, there's a pretty strong debate over, you know, whether or not the founders intended for that to include blacks or slaves at that point, um, and were merely um, kind of compromising, as it were, um, in, uh, in the development of the country to be able to, to actually secede from Britain. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who would say, no, they were not thinking of blacks. Um, they did not think of blacks as men, etc. So um, there's actually a pretty significant debate there. Um, but I think the principle is, um, is being set forth and is trying, what, what we're going to see is it's trying to come to fruition for all people. So even if it doesn't include blacks here, that the country is built in with its DNA, the sense that everyone is created equal, and that, um, that seed is going to grow and bloom and blossom. Does that make sense? Um, but unfortunately, at that point in history, that was not realized. And so 1865 comes along almost 100 years later, um, and, um, and you have, uh, what was it, the... Um, Equal Protection Clause uh, in the 14th Amendment, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for crime. Oh, this is the 13th Amendment, I think. Whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So this is the abolition of slavery in 1865 as the culmination of the Civil War. Um, and then you get to 1868. Uh, all persons born or naturalized, this is the... Um, 14th Amendment, um, all persons born and naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor to deny um, to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. All right, so again, you're seeing this trajectory of trying to increase the promissory note, if you will, of the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal um, and should be able to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You even see that language here um, in this further development. Uh, then you get to um, 1868, uh, uh, wait, hold on, uh, sorry, 1870, um, and within the same 14th Amendment, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So the voting, um, the kind of um, um, voting rights act, for lack of a better word. Um, then you get to Plessy versus Ferguson, um, which is uh, a Supreme Court ruling, uh, 1896. And you have the separate but equal doctrine established. Okay, so in an effort to not um, 
to not transgress the 14th Amendment, we're going to say that, uh, you know, as long as you're getting equal treatment, you can still discriminate or segregate, you know, so blacks and whites don't have to be in the same place. Um, so that's, uh, that's a workaround, you know, in this ideal that's now been pretty firmly established. So we're going to try to sidestep it. Uh, then you have, um, you know, 60 years later, roughly, uh, Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, which outlawed, so another Supreme Court case, it outlawed the ongoing segregation in schools that existed, okay? Um, so this was a major victory uh, to say that no, like, to be separate is inherently to be unequal. Now, that's not, that actually didn't, that's not 100% true. There were actually um, uh, really good um, all-black schools, for instance, um, prior to this point. Um, that ended up going downhill because of force integration. So, and you know, there are critical race theorists um, who uh, who said as much, and said that this was not necessarily the right approach to the right problem. Does that make sense? What I'm saying um, that there might have been better approaches than force integration. Um, but you again, the point is that the country is trying to move towards this notion of equal opportunity. You get the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and so this is a federal law that prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, national origin, sex, including pregnancy and religion and employment, education and access to public facilities and public accommodations, such as restaurants and hotels. Uh, this is also known as Title VII. Um, so the country is, for the majority or the entirety, really, of its history, um, trying to move towards the ideal but starts in a very broken place. Um, I really think that's true. Just, all right, elaborate. Which part? That it's always been working for. Yeah, that is that the country as a whole has always been, or that it's accurate, that it's always been working towards, you know, racial equality or towards the idea that all men are created equal. Okay. Um, so you know, I'm kind of at the end of that first section of what I was arguing for, equal opportunity and the movement there based on the history of these amendments and uh, laws. So what's your, what would be your response to kind of that historical development that I was laying out there? I don't know, I just... Maybe that feels like a one-sided... Um, narrative that sort of seems to indicate or kind of this look <clears throat> only says the you know the I, I can't even think of the thing that I'm trying to say but I guess I wonder how much that's like if that seems to say that there's hasn't been constant pushback against that throughout American history. Okay. No, that's uh, that's good. No, I, I definitely could have included that. I think that's true. Um, I guess my question would be, does does that fact negate a, a also a forward push, you know? No, I don't think so. Okay. I think every action definitely has an equal and opposite reaction in politics as well as the laws of nature. And, uh, for example, when the um, <clears throat> Emancipation Proclamation happened, the Civil War ended, 
uh, there was a massive amount, uh, and like there was a great opportunity. This country was embarking on this incredible project. Black men were in state houses yeah. all over the South immediately elected. Yep, that's right. Uh, and they were immediately shut down by grassroots campaigns throughout mm -hmm. the South. That's right. Uh, um, to eliminate the radical vote or whatever you wanted to call it at that time. Uh, you know, immediately and without prejudice shut down within a period of a few years, maybe. maybe. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's and, uh, and so, yeah, I think... I think yeah. There, there, there is, you know, there is an arc trending forward, but there's a lot of, a lot of pushback throughout history. It's very stop-start, and you know, it's frustrating in a lot of ways because we're still like, like, uh, uh, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's pushback, but it's also, I don't know, it's not easy. <laughs> well, kind of the legacy of the U.S. though, like every group that uh -huh. has been othered or outcast or, let's say, be a racial, ethnic creed or whatever it is that separates you from the main populace that has fought for, well, at the very minimum, civil rights has received those, and usually more. Um, I mean, except for one, but that's, I mean, but that seems to be the legacy of this country, though. Hmm. It's not that everybody in the country, obviously, we had a civil war over this, hmm. so, but that hmm. good seems to win out every time. Hmm. Yeah. That, you or, know. We're at least trending that direction. That, I think that I would emphasize on the trending that direction because that leaves a lot of room for a lot of a lot of the other and just to, to both of y'all's point you know even looking back at the abolition of slavery um, you know someone like um, Alexander in uh, in a new Jim Crow um, would say that uh, all we did was transform the old slavery into a new form of slavery through the um, um, incarceration system like through the prison system uh, because the text of the amendment says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States and so you know um, after uh, after the Civil War ended and that got passed you're right a bunch of blacks did all over the south get elected into public you know public offices state offices which is amazing until you know uh, the white populace in the south was able to kind of bounce back from the shock of that and work around by creating uh, what we call vagrancy laws um, all kinds of different laws that were illegitimate laws that were just a tool for them to um, re-enslave, you know, black people um, and do it through the legitimacy of the state. Um, and maybe a legitimate question might be whether or not that is still the case today. Um, but that is indisputably the case, uh, you know, at that particular point in history. Um, so yeah, there, there is definitely a whole side of the story that is true and is worth telling. The emphasis here is just that there are market and measurable, if you will, um, steps towards an ideal. You know, even if we're still not there yet, 
there's objective kind of movements in that direction that enough of, of a democratically elected populace or whatever is choosing to try to strive for. Does that make sense, what I'm saying there? Yeah. Okay. I also admit, like, that's, we've always set our eyes on that. Like, we progressed and gone back and forth, but like, it seems to be the steady march towards that goal that we set in place 270 years ago. Yeah, again, I don't know if I'd say steady, but it has been a march. Yeah. We're, we're not going the opposite direction. I mean, we have at times, but it seems to be like every generation has their battle, in, at least in that realm. And so in racism two and three, that is what will be disputed. Um, so we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, if, even if I don't say it explicitly and tied to this conversation, I think reflectively you'll see that that, that is a central claim of dispute. Um, I wasn't here last week, and I'm sorry I didn't listen to podcasts. Now, these three definitions, well, it's more than three, actually, because it's A, B, and Yeah, yeah. Are these different um, definitions from different points of view? Or? Yeah, that's, that's right. So I basically made the argument last week that in our current cultural landscape, we actually have multiple definitions of racism that are kind of circling around that no one is really defining very clearly when we're having public discourse about it. And so there's a lot of talking past one another, and that leads to demonizing one another and confusing one another. It's like, you know, we're all having this culture war and the grenades are going off and we're all inhaling smoke and coughing and we can't see the distinctions that need to be made in order to actually make productive, um, you know, movement on the topics or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and, and so uh, the 1 and then the 1A, the 2 and then the 2A, it's basically kind of the individual version of the definition and then that same concept but applied at a larger group level. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, so. Thank you. Um, okay, but so the equal opportunity then creates, really, I could have made a line over here, ends up creating an, an off-branching species of a doctrine called colorblind. Um, and uh, uh, theory or doctrine. Um, I think this is probably a good place to ask you, what do you think this means? I'm just going to say it means that when you, you look at all people the same and you don't see a difference. Okay. Anybody would agree with that, that that's what that means? If you do agree, raise your hand and just be efficient that way. I see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That they don't see color. People that, you know, would say, talk about colorblind would talk about, oh, I don't see color. I feel like they usually like. You hear me at home talk, so maybe you. I'm just thinking back on my past and, you know college classes that I took and here okay. and remembering some of the discourse and maybe this is too pessimistic of a statement but it's typically I feel like it's typically a term that a white person uses yes. to say oh I don't see you any differently I don't see color mm -hmm. and they they think that they're espousing like a positive yeah right that's you know, yes, that's right that's right but behind that really is the idea that the difference is what's wrong or what's negative, right? Like, I don't see you any differently because that 
difference is inherently a negative thing. So I see you as the same mm. as me because sameness equals. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Brandon, you promised to talk more. Any comment? I, I have a lot of context around that word that's really negative. So it's, um, if, if people can think the ideal of colorblind is probably a good thing, but it's huh. like starting when? It's like, like, you know, if you're colorblind, colorblind starting now and not through the yeah, yeah, okay. years huh. where color meant everything. Yeah, okay. Um, so it's kind of like a, um, an oversimplification of a, of a solution that is not far enough. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, I, I um, again, you know, I've been thinking and reading a lot about this. Um, and so this is actually very, um, uh, you know, confirming for me. I suspected that most people, when they hear and think about that word, think what you guys think. Um, and what I call that is the kind of um, cultural approach or definition of colorblind. Um, it's just how your average person uh, would talk about th how people think and talk about each other almost on an individual level. Does that make sense? Um, and, it, and what it does is it minimizes distinctiveness. It minimizes um, cultural differences that, um, you know, may be great, may be good, you know, that, um, that really takes away the identity to people, right? So I think, I think that maybe is what all of us are coming around and saying, I'm not sure about that. That feels like a negative thing to me. I don't want to embrace that. Um, and so that, that's good. Um, but that's actually just not what colorblind means at the most important and fundamental level at which it matters. Um, and so that's something that we've forgotten. Uh, and, it, and it again, it arose out of a history of movement, of things that have happened related to this notion of equality. Does that make sense? Um, and so um, you just, you know, everything that I put in notes here is going to be a quote from somebody. You're welcome to ask me where from, but I won't always announce that. Um, but just on this topic of colorblind, uh, the idea here is that race should never be a consideration in determining how government institutions treat persons, regardless of the purpose or rationale um, or of the rationale behind such race conscious measures. On this account, racial discrimination is unjust, so this is an issue of justice, when it treats race as relevant to basic human worth or moral standing. And then um, this person quotes another, or he doesn't quote another person, but he summarizes the position, because he doesn't actually hold this position, what I'm saying, um, but it was actually a really helpful um, rearticulation of it, so I thought I would include it. But then he uh, summarizes what a person named Bernard Williams says about it, who I think does hold this position. And he says, Bernard Williams has argued that because all persons are owed equal respect, there is a standing presumption in favor of treating everyone equally unless there is a relevant difference between persons that rationally justifies differential treatment. It is rational to give medicine to only those who are sick, and jobs to only those competent to perform them. And so such differential treatment is consistent with equal respect for the sick and the healthy, the competent and the incompetent. But to grant voting rights to only those who are left-handed is to treat right-handed citizens without due respect. Such treatment is not rational, and thus it is arbitrary and naturally resented by those disfavored by such grounds. 
One might argue that because race, as a matter of scientific fact, does not determine a person's needs or abilities, race is always an immaterial criterion for benefiting or burdening someone. So the idea here is not about um, how you and I relate to one another as individuals in a culture and you, you sort of your unique cultural distinctives that you bring to bear in a particular situation or whatever. It's about the coercive force of a government or institutions that make decisions that are not rationally based, but that are irrational. That is, because you have some certain quality, then you get a certain set of benefits or you get denied a certain set of services. And that's a very different thing, okay? Because if we're all gonna live under something that can take our life, our liberty, our stuff, then we wanna feel really good that it's not doing so in a way that is unjust or unfair. And so the question is, you know, what system of justice and fairness gives all of us the security, not just today, but 200 years from now when political tides have turned in a different direction, when population demographics have changed in numbers, and what looks like, you know, a minority today is actually going to be a majority in 200 years. Does that make sense? You want a system that can't easily change to suit the majority and what they want. Because otherwise, oppression can more easily creep in, if not reign, significantly, at the ebbs and flows of history. And so colorblind doctrine came about in the trajectory of equal opportunity to prevent coercive forces from taking your liberty to live and pursue the good life as you see fit. So that's a different thing, again, that's a different thing than me and you talking together and saying, you know, oh, I, I don't see color or whatever. Now, I think if we were seeking to be generous with people instead of having kind of what is maybe a pessimistic or judgmental perspective with people is that when maybe a white person says that, I think the generous point of view is that they're trying to say that I see you not your value not based on, you know, what you look like. I think that's the generous thing. Now, if they also mean a bunch of negative things, then that can, that can be a way of Christian charity to help them grow in that perspective, right? But to assume that you know what they mean by that and attribute a bunch of negative connotations to it when maybe all they were trying to say is like, hey, like, no matter what anybody else says or thinks about you, no matter what society says, you are equally valuable in my eyes. That's a good thing, I think, right? That's a Christian value. But we, what else may be laden on top of that? We have to discover through conversation. Give them the benefit of the doubt as Christians. Um, so that's, uh, that's racism one and kind of a concept map of, you know, related ideas. Um, any thoughts on that before we move to racism two? Mary? No? Man, you take such good notes. They look great. It makes me feel good. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think there's someone... I haven't heard someone say that in a very long time, but someone saying that I don't see color isn't, I don't think they're intentionally loading that with a bunch of baggage. I don't think someone... But they may have baggage in it. Right, right. You know. But that, I don't think they're giving it that much forethought. I think they're saying what generally, but I mean, you can't know unless you talk to somebody. I think they're trying to say that I don't... Yeah. I'm not going to treat you differently. Yeah. Most, most times when I hear it, even today, it's in reference to a, a specific DE&I initiative or even affirmative action. Where it's like we should have a colorblind society so it doesn't really matter. Um, 
So I don't, that, that's my context. What I was saying is like it comes in from a place of, of pushback rather than rather than what your definition of uh, um, the best case scenario. I totally agree with. Like we should not, we should not value yeah. each other differently. But usually, just contextually, I hear it as a as a pushback to just to something else. Yeah. 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 I think um, yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. I think that's. Yeah. When you're responding to something and aren't just like. Yeah, I think that's different. When, uh, you know, of those 75 books, you know, they're all kind of, most of them are written at a fairly popular level or whatever that I told you guys about that, uh, that were from Christian publishers on race or racism or whatever. You know, it was not uncommon for colorblind to appear in and kind of have the same assessment that all of us have as basically negative. And in every case, it was what I call that cultural version, um, which is fine. And even right, as in, depending on the articulation, but I think the more um, important and pertinent uh, ideology or framing of the concept is within kind of the political, governmental, institutional context of that principle, um, because it has a lot more um, potential harm that can be done. And so, what your ideal is in reference to that matters a lot. Does that make sense? So, what you're striving for matters a lot. Um, what we're trying to push people um, in terms of how they structure their businesses and organize you know, their, um, their clubs or whatever, um, that ideal matters a lot. And so the other tension is there's a reality now and there is a potential ideal and how much do you adjust the ideal to fit the reality versus trying to make the reality you know, change to fit the ideal. You know? and, th and that is a constant tension in lawmaking, in you know, conversations and discourse, but we'll keep going. Um, racism too. Uh, so um, this, uh, let's see, this comes from the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy under the Obama administration. Um, research demonstrates that most people hold unconscious, implicit assumptions that influence their judgments and perceptions of others. Implicit bias manifests in expectations or assumptions about physical or social characteristics dictated by stereotypes that are based on a person's race, gender, age, or ethnicity. People who intend to be fair and believe they are egalitarian apply biases unintentionally. Some behaviors that result from implicit bias manifest in actions and others are embodied in the absence of action. Either can reduce the quality of the workforce and create an unfair and destructive environment. So remember last week when we kind of gave our flyby um, that one of the key shifts into racism too is the removal of intent or intention. Um, so a lot of similarities, but you no longer need to know that you're being racist to be or act racist. Um, and the main uh, popular um, terminology for it, even though if you read in different kinds of discourse, you'll see different namings of it, um, like subversive racism or covert racism, um, but the popular discourse would just be implicit bias. Um, so that's what you'll see in most cases. Um, and so that would be for the individual level, you know, like systems can be that way, I guess, institutions can be that way, but, you know, more pertinent is at an individual level, you no longer need to have an ideology, like a, like a, a motivating conscious framework of how you understand people. Um, that ideology may be there, you may not know about it, but that's, the point is, it doesn't have to be a conscious hinge on which your actions turn. Does that make sense? 
Um, so I'm just, again, I'm trying to give more texture to, to these definitions from last week. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, again, um, this is from a book called Race and Place, How Urban Geography Shapes the Journey to Reconciliation. This is a Christian book. Um, and uh, he says, we humans are intricately entangled with many unconscious biases that shape our perception of others, our fears and assumptions, and our social behavior. Try as, as we may, these hidden prejudices consistently surface in our words, actions, attitudes toward others, no matter how nice or open-minded we think we are. And I'll just say, too, that, um, that you know, implicit bias is, um, you know, it would be hard to argue that implicit bias does not exist. Uh, so that would be, I mean, we could try to argue that, I guess, but... Um, but I think the overwhelming consensus is that everyone has different kinds of implicit biases. Um, the question, I think, is in part how we then judge um, what those might be and how they actually manifest and what kind of um, results they cause. So that's the, the harder thing to judge. Uh, yes, ma'am. Oh, okay. I thought you were just saying, hey. Uh, all right, I got five minutes. Um, yeah. Uh, so 2A here, um, racial, uh, racial practices that reproduce racial division in the contemporary United States. And this comes from a book, which is a really, really important and popular book called Divided by Faith, Evangelical Religion and the Problem of Race in America by Oxford University Press. Oxford University Press does not just publish any book, um, so it's kind of a big deal when they do. So this is a definitely more on the um, important and significant side. Um, and this is by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, uh, two sociologists, um, uh, who I think are Christians, um, or at least one of them is, if not both of them. Uh, anyway, so uh, racial practices that reproduce racial division in the contemporary United States, number one, are increasingly covert. Number two, are embedded in normal operations of institutions. Number three, avoid direct racial terminology. And number four, are invisible to most whites. It understands that racism is not mere individual, overt prejudice, or the free-floating irrational driver of race problems but the collective misuse of power that results in diminished life opportunities for some racial groups. Racism is a changing ideology with the constant and rational purpose of per, uh, um, perpetuating and justifying a social system that is racialized. The justification may include individual, overt prejudice and discrimination, um, but these are not necessary. Because racialization is embedded within the normal everyday operation of institutions, this framework understands that people need not intend their actions to contribute to racial division and inequality for their actions to do so. Um, any comment on that? I try to include, when possible, like really thick quotes so that it doesn't feel like this is like cherry picking or sort of like what's said in the next sentence, you know, like changes the meaning of it or whatever. Like, this is, I hope, a really robust kind of, um, and this, I think, represents the, the tone and tenor of the rest of the book. Um, a lot of their research is in, like, kind of social surveys, and so they do a lot of surveying. They do some personal interviews, and that's how they sort of put together their, um, their findings and their argument. Anyth anything about that before we go to the concept map? 
No, I'm ready to see the concept map. See it. The most interesting concept map is the last one, but we won't get there this week. Um, so this concept map includes the others, all, all, although um, a couple of those concepts that were in a different color get sort of taken away as being primary. It's not that they're a part of the discussion, but they end up having a transformation in meaning, um, like the uh, colorblind, as I was saying. Um, that ends up taking on sort of a transformation in meaning in, in most of the, sort of the public conversation. Um, so, but you get, get a couple added things in here. You get uh, unequal outcomes. I don't think that was a part of the last one as being one of the derivative or circles around the universe of the concept. Um, you get this concept of whiteness, white fragility, and white privilege that enter in here. Um, those are going to also translate into the third one. Um, but remember, the difference between the second and the third that I identified is um, the concept of power. So power is less of a conversation uh, emphasis in my reading of Racism 2 um, and 2A um, than it is in the, what ends up being a lot of the, the, the writers and thinkers that um, I developed Racism 3 out of. Does that make sense? So it's not that it's not there. You saw it in the quote just a second ago. It's just not the accent that they're, it's not the bell that they're ringing. Makes sense? Um, so because we're out of time, we'll leave it at that concept map and then come back next week. And what I will do is um, I'll basically give you basic definitions of things like whiteness and white privilege and white fragility um, and show you like a little, like just a little tease. Like here's like some examples of white privilege here. Um, that you uh, you know that you'll see if you kind of do the reading or whatever, um, and then we'll get to uh, the racism three, and then here's where we're trying to go. So this is all just kind of surveying the options, really understanding because we're all engaged in this conversation out in the culture, um, and we're gonna eventually have to come to some biblical evaluation. Okay, so it's not just like looking at the options, but also trying to say okay. You know which one of these maybe cl most closely aligns with you know the various um, um, you know doctrines in the Bible. Does that make sense? Um, and then there will be kind of a final step, hopefully. So that may take us more than what I've said in terms of weeks, but uh, a final step in trying to then apply that. And so, how can we be about seeking justice for the least of these in our society? That's kind of the culmination of where we're going. Does that make sense? So if you felt like, where's the Bible in this? Where's the theology in this? Fortunately, some of these things, they, you know, this is the work that it takes to get up to that kind of evaluation as Christians. You know, a lot of us are used to just systematic theology where all we do is Bible. Um, but we have two worlds that we have to work in now. You know, we have to work with the Bible world and we have to work in like the natural world. And then we have to bring them together to understand, you know, sometimes both, both of them, but other times let the one be the lens through which we understand the other. And that in the setting like this takes time. Okay, so you with me? Any questions? Was the organization clear? I think so. I think the maps are really helpful. <laughs> yeah? For me. Okay. Yeah, I like a good bit of graphic design. It's kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't claim to be the best, but I do what I can to give visual illustrations of things that I'm thinking about. And I hope, my prayer is that I actually am representing something that is, that is right and true for how these things exist in the world. And if you have um, you know, better ways to represent these different notions, or even think I could better parse out the notions, then please let me know. Uh, I'm not trying to, you know, even though I have a point of view, I'm not trying to 
misrepresent anything. So do you find that organize this has I'm sorry. Do you find that organizing things in visually and quotes and pulling do you find that as you read through it, formulate your you know, go through your process of formulating your opinions and then you organize it to teach it to others, does it change anything that you thought about it before, just organizing it? Uh, yeah, no, it definitely crystallizes um, connections that were weaker in my mind because I had to form them to be, to be able to utter it, you know, to say this is how you get from here to here to here. Oftentimes, I don't have some of those in-betweens, and I have to figure out what is the relationship here. And then sometimes I've changed my mind. Like, I, I mean, we don't have time to talk about something I was just thinking about over the last day and a half that I might be changing my mind about in relation to this, uh, this topic, um, or at least seriously considering something that was not on the table before. So let me pray so you guys can, can go. And um, Father, just um, we're grateful that we have this community that we share together, this safe place to talk about the hard things, that you live between us and in us, and you grant us grace, grace from you and grace for one another. And we're just kind of putting this before you and our hands open, asking that at the end of it all, you would allow us to make a difference in this subject, in this area. Um, there are people that are made in your image that um, are not living the life that you designed for them to live. And whatever the cause, whatever the reason, we want to be a part of the solution, God. So help us to be faithful image bearers in this world towards that end. And we invite your manifest presence into worship today so that you might get the honor and that we might get the blessing of your nearness, God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.